Hello, and welcome to the TF Bulletin Preview episode of the ToxPod. Here today with me, I have Jennifer Schumann. She's, of course, one of the Bulletin editors. Hello, Jennifer. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is the last edition of the year, just before Christmas. Going on a bit of a break, are you, Jen? Yes, thankfully. I'm having a couple of weeks off after Christmas, which I'm very much looking forward to after the big year that it has been. It has been an awesome and busy year. Uh, so let's get into it, shall we? Uh, so this is the December issue of the Bulletin. And as always, we have a message from our president. That's right. And Dimitri has summarised uh, all of the activities of TAFT um, throughout 2022, which has been a bumper year, really. The, we've had a return to in-person meetings, lots of seminars with the um, educational committee. We've been very active in that space. Um, for webinars, we've had regional conferences and a lot of educational opportunities. So he also said we've now got 1,900 TF members, which is a big milestone. Yeah, that is big. Uh, there's a few educational seminars that will be coming up in the new year, which will be really good. Um, and Dimitri also mentions that next year is the 60th Jubilee celebration of TAFT. So there'll be a, a special uh, event in London early in the new year. So that's very exciting. I remember the 50th as it was only yesterday. Didn't manage to get to it. But Me too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and what about some more of the content? What, what have we got this episode? Uh, we've got a really interesting article on cognitive bias um, from some authors from the United Kingdom. Uh, it's obviously an issue that can influence all points of a toxicology case. Uh, but in this piece, Hilary Hamnett and Megan Martin review some of those different parts of a toxicology case that can be very heavily influenced by cognitive bias. So the selection of tests, the process of drug screening and the interpretation of those results. They also provide some bias minimising strategies that you can all use in your own laboratories. Yeah, there are several flowchart type uh, diagrams there which can help you decide uh, some strategies on reducing cognitive bias in the lab. We've actually recorded an episode with Hillary, it, was, it might have been last year or the year before, so if you want to get know more about how cognitive bias and learn about what that's all about, just look that episode up. One of my favourite bits of the article was in the concluding sentence where it says, um, so cognitive bias is not caused by dishonesty or personal failure or a lack of ethical behaviour or the absence of professionalism. It's just a, a natural thing that people can have or can exist that you just have to be aware of. And the strategies to minimise it are quite simple, really. They are, and I think awareness is step one in reducing it. So it's a very important article, I think, that um, impacts all of us, uh, regardless of the different areas of forensic toxicology that we're working in. Okay, and another article we have here is the 150th anniversary of uh, the Forensic Institute in Budapest. That's right. Uh, it's really interesting, 150 years of Budapest's Forensic Toxicology Department. Uh, so the team from uh, the Hungarian Institute for Forensic Sciences uh, outlined some of the difficulties faced by the founder of forensic toxicology in Hungary, a man named Emil Felitar excuse my bad Hungarian accent, <laughs> in establishing um, the National Forensic Chemistry Laboratory there. Uh, he went through a whole lot of different challenges and knockbacks from the government, so it just really shows that persistence is key no matter what you're trying to do. It's always interesting to think about the origins of your own facility. Like, and uh, ours, for example, is 
Forensic Science SA was born out of a royal commission where there was some issues back in the 1980s and that they recommended a reform of uh, forensic science in our state. Similar thing may be happening in another state in Australia. Um, this institute was formed through persistence of, a, of more or less an individual, so that was um, inspiring to see. Actually, it's a similar story with our institute in Victoria uh, that uh, a, a very important Australian criminal case of Lindy Chamberlain, Nadingo Ate My Baby story, that was quite um, important around the establishment of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. So the history of, of a lot of these forensic institutions is actually really, really fascinating, I think. Yes, that case was immortalised in a movie starring Meryl Streep. I believe. You know, a dingo took my baby. Yeah, absolutely. Also immortalised further in Seinfeld episodes with Elaine trying the Australian accent and doing quite a good job. And the Hungarian lab has come a long way. They now, however, have a QTOF. They're detecting different NPS and analysing uh, five to 600 post-mortem cases a year. I really like looking back at the history of uh, forensic talks and how they used to do things and You've got to remember that people are going to look back at us in maybe 100 years' time and giggle at the, some of the processes we did. We do now. Like um, I shouldn't really be giggling at the, the process of testing for strychnine by injecting a frog with an extract of a human to see if it twitches. Uh, that's We wouldn't do that now, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it gives us an indication of how far we've come since the 1880s. That's okay. right. That old saying, the past makes ancient good uncouth. Ah, very good. <laughs> Say that again, the past what? The past makes ancient good uncouth. You know, there's often, oh. you know, just like you've said, you look back at different things and at the time they all seem sensible, but when you look back, they're really not. <laughs> yeah, I might get a T-shirt with that. <laughs> and Wayne Jones from Sweden, once again, giving us a, a decent amount of words here for another article. Yes, Wayne's written a really comprehensive history on diabetes, which obviously is a disease that affects many of us. Um, I even had gestational diabetes when I was pregnant with my second child, actually. So um, it was a very interesting read for me. Wayne reports that between 10 and 12% of the population suffer from diabetes, um, mostly type 2 diabetes, and probably because of the... Um, modern day life that we're all living, very sedentary life, sitting in offices, increased rates of obesity across the Western world in particular. Um, but it creates a really heavy financial burden on health budgets, obviously. So um, very important to understand the the treatments um, of which the first line is lifestyle changes for type 2 diabetes, which is interesting. That's right. Um, and he also provides a really interesting history of how um, treatment has progressed over the years, um, the discovery of insulin, and he goes all the way back to 1550 BC. So it's a very comprehensive overview of um, this very common disease. And I didn't know that the diabetes comes from, the word diabetes comes from a Greek verb meaning to flow as in a siphon, which sort of reflects the um copious urination that comes and it's also described in um, ancient text from uh, from Greece. It says diabetes is a remarkable affliction being a melting down of the flesh and limbs into urine. So remembering without treatment, diabetes really is um, a horrific disease with a very short yeah, absolutely. lifespan. Yes. Then we have an article from 
Carson Stemmerich and Torsten Arndt and their team in Germany have provided quite a lot of content to the bulletin over the last couple of years. So they've um, overviewed deuterated pharmaceuticals. Yeah, deuterated um, pharmaceuticals are probably, I guess, like most forensic toxicologists, they're some of my favourite things. You know, you can use them to enhance an analysis. You get some labelled paracetamol or especially something like olanzapine, get a deuterated analogue and you can turn a vague calibration curve that may look like a series of random dots. All of a sudden you use a deuterated analogue and you get a perfect 0.999 R squared value, which is fantastic. But that's not the only case where they use deuterated drugs. The other problem is that pharmaceutical companies now are starting to use them against us and they're going to start, and they have already (laughs) started, developing drugs incorporating deuterium. And I think we did discuss this back on the ToxPod uh, several years ago now as one of the um, upcoming risks for forensic toxicology. I initially thought, Jen, that maybe these pharmaceutical companies are just generating these deuterated versions so that they can get a new patent and therefore make more money out of it. But the drugs actually do have different pharmacokinetics, so the, the body may break it down a bit slower. So, for example, the first one that came out was tetrabenazine, a deuterated version of that, and the metabolism is slowed down a bit so that actually you need to give a lower dose to people. So that's the advantage of going to deuterated analogues. But Carsten does a much better job at summarising this article than I do. Uh, but it does raise <laughs> issues for forensic toxicologists where we have to think about how are we going to analyse for these drugs in the future if um, there's a possibility there be there being a deuterated analogue. When we were talking about it a few years ago, we really didn't think there were that many drugs around. But the table at the end of this article is three pages long uh, of different drugs, and that includes things it like... It is, that's right. Acetaminophen, uh, clopidogrel, caffeine, uh, even ethanol was on there. Apparently ethanol was patented once as a as a low hangover version of ethanol, deuterated ethanol, which is amazing. So, yeah, it's a very concerning development. Yeah, that table was a lot longer than I would have expected it to be, actually. But um, it's really interesting to see them all all laid out there. And um, a tribute to Manfred Moeller. That's right. We've got a, a really lovely tribute written by Hans Maurer for Manfred Moeller, who uh, was a long-time TF member. Uh, he was also a board member of TF and president of the GTFCH. And he was the 1999 Alan Curry Award winner. So he's got a long history with TFT um, that Hans covers really well in this article. Um, and he was also one of the pioneers of forensic hair testing, which I didn't know about, actually. So it's um, a really lovely tribute to a pioneer in forensic toxicology. Yeah, as well as all the scientific achievements, he's, Hans mentioned him here is being such so friendly and sociable. He built many friendships with colleagues from all over the world, which is what TF is all about, I guess. So you really embody the TF spirit by the sound of things. Absolutely. And I think that's why so many people love going back to the TF meetings year after year for many decades, because it's a it's all those friendships that are formed on top of all of the scientific content, of course. Of course, of course. So we've got profiles on all of the awardees of the 2022 TF travel grants. Uh, so these awards obviously enable international members to attend different meetings and for these members it was to attend the Versailles meeting in September. So there are um, awardees from South America, Europe, Asia and the Middle East 
and Australia as well. So we've got a good overview of each of the different awardees, which gives you a bit of a, an introduction to some of the people that you may not know so well in TAFT. Yeah, don't forget to take advantage of those grants. They're there for the taking. So put your applications in before next uh, the next conference. That's right, and all the information's online. Uh, I'd just like to say thanks to all of our contributors and sponsors for all of the content uh, and uh, support that has been provided to the TF Bulletin this year. Uh, obviously, we're, we're in the stage of a bit of a transition period with the Bulletin, with Rebecca Hartman coming online as my new co-editor and uh, Sarah stepping down from the um, editor's board, but stepping up to the TF board and, and acting as the TF bulletin liaison. So um, just bear with us while we're dealing with some of the teething issues over this issue and the next one. Um, but thank you again to everybody who has worked with us and contributed over this year. And we are always welcoming new content. We've got the TF bulletin Gmail um, that you can send your content to. And just a reminder to please remember to send your articles in the Word format only as Word documents with any figures, tables or images as separate image files. It's very important for us for laying out all of the content for each issue. Okay, thank you very much, Jen. Uh, your edition of the bulletin should be in the mail very soon, I imagine, and it can be downloaded from the TF website within the next couple of days. That's right. And I uh, just want to wish everybody around the world a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I look forward to working with many of you on the bulletin and, and seeing you all hopefully at the Rome meeting next year. Indeed. Thank you very much, Jen. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tf2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.